All right, well, already a joy this morning to be worshiping and reflecting on Jesus Christ, and I'm going to invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to the book of Jonah. We're halfway through the book. We have already covered uh, that which is most familiar. Uh, Many of us, when we think of Jonah, we think of what's already happened so far. The Word comes to Jonah. He hears the Word of God telling him to go to Nineveh. Jonah gets up. He arises, and he does not go to Nineveh. He goes the opposite direction of Nineveh. He flees from the presence of the Lord, the text says, and he goes to Tarshish. He's running from God, has nothing uh, to do with God, wants nothing to do with obedience to God, and so he runs. God is not done with him. God pursues him, and Jonah finds himself in the middle of a storm. We see this in chapter 1. The storm is of supernatural origin. God sends it, hurls it upon the sea. The sailors with him are acting more noble than Jonah is. Jonah wants to die. Uh, This is the depths that he has gone to run from God, that he is willing to jump in the sea, or or worse, actually he's willing to be thrown into the sea by the sailors. Turns out that the sailors learn to fear the true God. Jonah, on the other hand, is plunged into the ocean where he drowns, but God appoints a fish. Just as his life is fainting away in chapter 2, verse 7, he remembers the Lord. He's driven to repentance. He calls out. He recognizes that verse 9, salvation belongs to the Lord. In chapter 2, verse 10, the Lord speaks to the fish in an act of sovereign will, commands this fish to obey him. The fish obeys, vomits him up on the dry land. For most of us, this is what we heard about Jonah growing up, and this is where the story ends. Something like this will usually be the end of the story, that Jonah, after being spit up upon the fish, he goes to Nineveh, he learned his lesson, and the lesson is, of course, don't run from God, or don't disobey God, and that's kind of the extent of the lesson of the book of Jonah. Isn't that true that most of us, we kind of finished it there? We maybe hear a little bit about some interaction that God has with Jonah, with the plant. We're not quite sure what all that is, what that means. We don't understand why Jonah, at the end of the book, is all angry. He's displeased. Usually, uh, in fact, quite often, that part's left out of the story. I want to talk about that part. In fact, we're going to do something where we pull out of the book for a second. We're going to overview chapters 3 and 4, but then we're going to dive back into Luke chapter 15, and I'll tell you why in a little bit. I'm going to tell you why in a little bit. See, what happens here, in chapter 2, when Jonah is brought to the end of himself, God is teaching him a lesson in the belly of the fish, Jonah repents. I really don't believe this is a sham repentance. I really do believe that Jonah has been brought to the end of himself, and there is a measure of true, genuine repentance as he's at the bottom of the sea in the belly of a fish. But at the same time, what we're going to see in chapters 3 and 4, that there are layers to Jonah's heart that God wants to unpeel. You can think of your heart like an onion with many, many layers. And for God to get down to the core of who you are, it's often not one time you need to learn a lesson. Isn't that true? I found that to be true in my life. That God could bring me to the very end of myself. He could convince me of my own need to change. 
He could draw me to repentance and I could learn a lesson and I could find myself not long after that going back in the same way to the sin I've committed in the past. It's not that the repentance wasn't real. It's just that our hearts have layers upon layers that need to be cleansed by the work of Christ. Sanctification is a process, not an event. And so I think Jonah has really repented in the belly of the fish. And I think that Jonah, like you and me, needs to be taught more and more and more about the grace of God and the call of God in his life. The human heart is like a mansion with many rooms. If you can get this imagery in your mind, it might help you. Your, your heart is, is many-faceted. There's all kinds of rooms in there. And before we come to Christ, each and every room is filled with filth. And we're like hoarders gathering for ourselves selfish thoughts and selfish actions. We are living not for Christ. We are a heap of trash and filth and wickedness in our hearts that we don't want to give up to God before we come up to Christ. And when the Lord saves us, He enters into our mansion. He comes on in. He says, I'm Lord of this place. Let's begin cleaning house. And by the grace of God, we begin to change. Jesus is cleaning us up. He's he's showing us rooms that we had never seen before that contain the filth that we had never watched before, never knew about before. And there's often times in our lives when we we grow. Actually, the house starts getting cleaner. We start to go, oh, wow, I'm I'm doing all right. And then Jesus comes and says, hey, uh, do you see this closet here? We go, oh, and there's a lot more filth. And suddenly, it's not the, the filth that everyone's seeing. In fact, if we were to invite someone into our mansion, they could walk around, they could see things, and it might look pretty decent from the outside until they got, start looking in the closets. Until we get underneath the surface. There's more than one way to be wicked, is the title of my sermon. And the reason I'm labeling it this is because I want us to see in the life of Jonah, and then we're also going to look at the life of the older brother in the prodigal son story, that there's times in our lives when our sin is overt and obvious, as Jonah's is in chapters 1 and 2. But there's also times in our lives when our sin is hidden. It's in the closet. Externally, you might say in chapter 3 that Jonah is obeying the word of the Lord. He's going to Nineveh. He's facing his fears. He's doing what God has called him to do. Now that's a step from chapters 1 and 2. But you'll see in chapter 4 especially that there's something going on in Jonah's heart. Chapters 3 and 4 make it clear that there's something deeper than mere disobedience to the law of God that's going on in Jonah's heart. In fact, I want to draw your attention to the composition of the book of Jonah. It really is a literary masterpiece. The book is designed to teach us something about God, about His ways, and about ourselves. It divides perfectly right in the middle, chapters 1 and 2 containing a section, and chapters 3 and 4 containing a section. In both of these chapters, you see Jonah running from God in different ways. In chapters 1 and 2, it is Jonah being rebellious against the command of God, In chapters 3 and 4, it is Jonah resisting the compassion of God. In chapters 1 and 2, he's defying God's direction. In chapters 3 and 4, he's defying God's affection. In chapters 1 and 2, he is outwardly rebellious. 
And then in the belly of the fish, he is inwardly repentant. But in chapters 3 and 4, he is outwardly compliant. But outside the city, he's inwardly defiant. The parallels abound. I want you to see this. If you have your text open and you're looking at the chapters, in my Bible, I could see all four chapters laid out before me. It's really convenient. And I want to point this out to you. There's a structure going on here. In chapter 1, in cha- uh, chapter one verse 1, in chapter 3, verse 1, you see parallels. Chapter 1, verse 1, you have God's Word coming to Jonah. Chapter 3, verse 1, you got God's Word coming to Jonah. Almost identical wording, slightly different, but very close. The same command, get up, go to Nineveh. Chapter 1, verse 3, chapter 3, verse 3, you have Jonah's response to God's Word. In chapter 1, he runs. In chapter 3, he obeys. In chapter 1, verse 4, in chapter 3, verse 4, you have God's warning. In chapter 1, it's coming in the form of a storm. In chapter 3, it's coming in the form of the message of God's judgment. In 1.5 and 3.5, both of those contain how the pagans responded to the warning. In chapter 1, it's the pagan sailors responding by crying out to their gods. In chapter 3, verse 5, it's the Ninevites crying out to God, the true God. In chapter 1, verse 6, in chapter 3, verse 6, it's the response of the pagan leader. Chapter 1 is the ship captain responding to the message, uh, the, the storm, the warning. He tells Jonah, wake up and call out to his God. In chapter 3, verse 6, it's the king of Nineveh calling the whole city to repentance. You get to chapter 1, verse 7 and following, we get to see that the sailor's response is actually better than Jonah's response. They're the one that actually begin worshiping the Lord on the ship as the sea calms. They're the ones not trying to throw Jonah into the sea while Jonah's begging them to. In chapter 3, verse 7 and following, we see that Ninevites response is actually better than Jonah's. They repent and God relents from the disaster on the city. You guys seen the parallels? Chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, God is teaching Jonah about grace through a fish. Chapter 4, verses 1 to 10, God is teaching Jonah about grace through a plant. The book's a mirror image of itself. The next time you read it, keep these in mind, you're going to see in chapters 1 and 2 this outward defiance of the prophet of God to the command of God. In chapters 3 and 4, you're going to see this inward defiance. He goes, but his heart's not in it. He complies to the command, but his heart is still far from God. Friends, there's there's different ways to run from God. We're familiar with the way that this defies the the Word of God. We're familiar with the way that defies the written commands of God. We see those in the criminals of our society and the crimes that are committed. We see those crimes and they're easy to identify, aren't they? What's much harder to identify is the running from God that shows up the church every Sunday. (laughs) The running from God that is very religious. The running from God that complies externally to the formal laws that they understand to be coming from God's Word. The internal resistance might be there, but it might be hidden in a closet somewhere deep within the mansion. Externally, it looks great. 
just as I believe Jonah's journey to Nineveh might have looked great, though his heart was far from God at that point. I want us to see this in, in chapter 1 of Romans. You can turn in your Bibles to the book of Romans, where Paul is basically lining out for his readers the sinfulness and the fallenness of humanity. In chapter 1, he gets very graphic in his descriptions of the kinds of sins that these pagans have committed. In chapter 1, verse 29, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. You see that? It's describing someone who's outwardly rebellion, rebellious, unrighteous, all these sins manifesting themselves externally in their lives. But I want you to turn the page and go to chapter 2 of Romans, where in verse 17, he talks about a different kind of rebellion. Verse 17, but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law, and boast in God, and know His will, and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law. And he goes on describing these people who claim to know God and to be right with God because of their keeping of the law. And he concludes that they, just as much as the people he described in Romans chapter 1, have turned aside. Look at chapter 3, verse 12. All have turned aside. So you got these rebels. They're the ones that have turned aside. But you got these religious people, and they're also the ones who, Paul says, have turned aside. Rebellion can look outwardly like the criminal. It could look also more tidy than that. It could look clean, nicely dressed, obedient. See, Jonah in chapters 3 and 4 might be more like the religionists in Romans 2. He's doing the right thing on the outside, but inwardly, his heart is far from God. This is called self-righteousness. This is called formality. This might be called and labeled moralism. It's the idea that I, on the external, can do things that continue uh, to make me uh, acceptable to God. I, by my efforts, I, by my outward ability, am able to become more Christ-like in my own flesh, in my own strength, by my own power. I can do this. It's the kind of religion that focuses on the person's ability in and of themselves to honor God, to become like Christ. That does not need the Holy Spirit. It does not look out to Him for help. And in the other way they're doing it, the way they're approaching the holiness that they're trying to grow in life is simply by adding laws and doing their best to obey them externally. It's self-righteousness. And then you commend yourself to God based on your ability to keep the rules. This is a subtle shift that happens. And it's possible, just like Jonah, for at one point in our lives to be outwardly rebellious, running from the external commands of God, 
and then not long after that, turn into someone so self-righteous that we feel that we do not deserve any kind of holding back from God and that those who we feel deserve punishment need to be punished and we stand in self-righteousness over them all because we've built an external religion that commends ourselves to God and we feel pretty good about it. I want us to turn to Luke chapter 15. Scholars have noted that the parable of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15 parallels the story of Jonah. Some have said that Jesus might have been even thinking about the story of Jonah when he was telling the story. The prodigal son story is nearly a retelling of the story of Jonah. You have, of course, you know the story, the disobedient son who defies his father, asks for his inheritance. He runs away. He squanders the inheritance, wastes it on himself. But he gets to a point of despair. And he finally realizes he needs to turn his life around, come back home to his father. He's humbled. And we see that great moment in the story when the father goes out and greets the son and embraces him and welcomes him back and throws a party. He's outwardly defiant, but he repents and he returns home. Often that's kind of the end of that story. But the whole point of this parable wouldn't be complete unless we read the end of the story, which talks about, starting in verse 25, someone who's known as the older son, the older brother. And this section of the parable corresponds to Jonah chapter 3 and 4. It's the, it's the self-righteous one. It's the external obedience. Here we meet someone in this parable of who has obeyed all his life, who has been near his father the whole time, who didn't go away, didn't waste anything, and yet he's not held up as the hero of the story. Because we'll find that his heart is actually far from God, just as Jonah's was in chapters 3 and 4. Here's what I want to do this morning. I want to camp at the end of the parable of the prodigal son. I want to examine the older brother. And I want to draw out lessons for us about what self-righteousness looks like. What are the symptoms of self-righteousness? And that will actually help us understand Jonah and why he does what he does in chapters 3 and 4. Okay? So we're actually, to preach on Jonah, we're going to preach on Luke. Guys, we're in Luke 15. Luke 15 will lay a foundation so that next week and the following weeks as we work through the end of Jonah, we're going to have a greater understanding of what's going on in Jonah's heart that causes him to do the things he does and to feel the feelings he's feeling in those moments as he gets angry at God for saving the Ninevites. Would you join me? Let's read in chapter 15 of Luke, verses 25 down to the end, verse 32. Now the older brother was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But 
He was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, you or who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you're always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is very similar to Jonah. Jonah's standing in uh, the outside of Nineveh as he sees an entire city repent. How many of you would like to see an entire city repent? And Jonah got to see it. And right there, as he's watching the repentance take place before his eyes, he is angry. Mirroring the heart of this older brother. You see a brother that's returning and being celebrated and grace, lavish grace being poured out on this younger brother. And what's the older brother do? He's angry. He's angry. I want to look at the symptoms of self-righteousness. And this is what I hope happens as we go through this. I hope that we can take the time as we observe this to really reflect on our own hearts. Because self-righteousness is as old as sin. You could argue that the first sins are sins of self-righteousness. We think we're better than we are, wiser than we are, that we deserve a place that only God has, and we move forward in lack of trust and dependence on our Heavenly Father. That's self-righteousness. And every human heart has had the disease of self-righteousness up to this very moment. We were all born into self-righteousness. We all struggle with self-righteousness. I want us to see how it might be playing out in our lives. And as we look at the older brother, we will realize, yes, we are, in some ways, we are the younger brother. We have, we have reached a point of despair. We came back to the Father and we received His grace. If you're a Christian, you know that you were the younger brother. And yet we are also going to have to admit as we read this parable that sometimes our attitudes slip right into line with that older brother. And so as we look at the symptoms of self-righteousness, I want us to really evaluate, are we in some ways, in some areas, in some occasions, in some of our relationships, we are self-righteous. Let's look at the first symptom. We see this in the older brother. The first symptom of self-righteousness is this. Desiring God's blessings, but not God. The self-righteous person desires God's favor, His blessings, what God can provide, but not God Himself. Look at verse 29. He's incredulous and angry at his father. He answered his father, Look, these many years I have obeyed you. I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat. And watch this, watch this. That I might celebrate with who? My friends. He doesn't want to celebrate with the father. He wants the young goat so he can celebrate with his friends, his people, do his things. 
He doesn't want a relation with the Father. There's no indication in all this that the older brother has any real love for the Father. He may be geographically close to the Father. He may have never left the estate of the Father, but clearly his heart is distant. He's not looking at God and saying, thank you for all the ways you've provided for me. He's very clearly, it's revealed in this moment that the reason he's sticking around at the Father's estate is not because he loves the Father, but because by laboring to serve the Father and obey the Father, he might get something out of it, like a party, like a young goat. Slaughtered for him to celebrate him and his goodness. He doesn't want God. He wouldn't like to celebrate with God. He wants to take what the Father could offer him and bring it over to his corner of the world and celebrate with his own friends. There are times in our lives that this is true of us. We want God to bless us. We're just not as interested as a relationship with God. We want the things he can offer us And so he's more like some cosmic genie. And if this cosmic genie wants me to do good things for him, then sure, I'm going to try my best to labor and do good and obey and I'll do that so long as God will give me something that I want at the end of the day. For the self-righteous, God is a means to an end, not the end of self. God's not the bottom line of life. There are other things that are the bottom line. There are other things that you want, other things that you're pursuing. To have God is not enough. To be near Him is not enough. This is the nature of the self-righteous mind. I don't need God's forgiveness. I don't need God's care. I don't need His relationship. I just need His stuff. So you know you're self-righteous when you'll worship God as long as it's convenient. You'll obey Him so long as it's helping you accomplish the things you want for your own life. But what happens when those things disappear? Or what happens when God doesn't allow you to have your idols? What about God? Seriously, I think it's helpful to ask the most basic of questions every once in a while. Do we love God for God's sake? If He never gave you anything that you long for in this life, would you love Him? Would you still want Him? Would you still draw near to Him for His sake, for His glory, for His beauty, for His love? Is He and He alone enough for you? Or is He a strategic tool for you to grab something else that you want? Like He was for the older brother. He's going to make life easier for me. I'll follow God. God's going to give me a better job if I follow Him. He's going to fix my problems. He's going to give me the moral standing I need so I can have a good reputation for others. I'm going to work really hard to obey His rules and God will help me gain in this world. But what if God's plan includes none of these things? What if your pursuit of God and your relationship with God, in fact, ruins your reputation? What if your following of God leads you to a place where you deny the world and no longer are able to enjoy the world's accumulated material possessions? Can you still worship Him? Can you say with Job, though He slay me, 
yet I will hope in Him. If there are no earthly benefits for following Jesus, will you follow Him still? If there is nothing in it for you, this side of heaven, that you will have friends forsake you, you'll have job opportunities lost or not offered, because of your trust in Jesus, because of your commitment to His Word, when it gives you no earthly benefit, is He still worthy? Is He still enough? Friends, the answer to this question is a resounding yes! He is enough for us. He is enough for us. He is glorious and good and our Savior. He is worthy of our praise. Which is why the psalmist could say, Whom have I in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth that I desire, desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but you are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That's what the true humbled, poor in spirit people do when they come to Jesus. They say, give me, give me nothing in this world. Take all the things of this world, but give me Jesus, and that's enough. We come to God for His own sake, for His own glory. But the self-righteous don't have a real need for the grace and glory of God, but they see God as a way to get the things they do want. Just like the older brother who obeyed so that he would get something from God. Let's look at the second mark of self-righteousness. A second symptom. The older brother is fixated on another's sin. Look at verse 30. Right in the middle of the rant of the older brother, he says, when, But when this son of yours... You ever talk about your brother that way to your dad? This son of yours, I mean, even there, you see he's distancing himself. You don't want to call this guy his brother. It's your son. This son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes and you killed the fatted calf for him? He, he, he wants nothing to do with this guy and he's fixating on the sin. He has said nothing about the return of this younger brother, nothing about his repentance, nothing about the need to extend to him compassion, nothing about the need of his mercy. The, the younger brother has come willing to do anything to, to regain a standing with his father. We've read that in, up above in the previous section where the younger brother is talking about coming home. But the older brother says nothing about those things. What he does talk about is the failure of the younger brother. Nothing about any good things that might have changed in this person's life. Everything about what he did in his failure is a fixation on others' sins. The people who are self-righteous love to fixate on the failures of others. It makes them feel good. It helps bolster up their self-righteousness that they're trying to accumulate in life. It's really, really interesting that we humans are like this. It's really bizarre, but it's really ingrained into the fallen nature of man. How often do you find yourself secretly delighting in another's failure? Do you get a morbid kind of 
joy when someone is not measuring up? Do you like to hear about the failures of your friends or your in-laws or your family members? Do you have an odd fixation on all the ways people don't measure up to either your standards or God's? Fixating on other sins. It's a habit of the the self-righteous. We know we're doing this the moment we, we love to hear the juicy gossip of someone else's failure. We love it because we use that as a stool to step on to lift ourselves up higher. This is exactly what Jonah did. He's fixating on the sin of the Ninevites when he goes out and waits for God to judge them. He wants them to fail. He wants them to be destroyed for their failures. Though they're repenting, he wants nothing to do with their repentance. He wants to condemn them to a life of no grace, no mercy, fixating on the sins of their past where there is no chance of change or help or mercy. We can become fixated on how people have violated the law. I'm slowly working my way through the book uh, Les Miserables by Victor Hugo. And one of the main characters in this novel is a police detective by the name of Javert. And you've seen the movie. He might not be the best singer, but um, he's an interesting character in literature. He is really the embodiment of the law. The whole story, he's chasing down ex-convict Jean Valjean to bring him to justice. He is a man who's all law, no grace. He has no grasp of mercy, no idea how to deal with failure. And so though someone might have repented, might have changed, might be a different person, he has no category for that. The law is a cold, hard reality that he must mete out judgment in the world. And so he is always hunting, always chasing the one who has violated the law. I wonder if some of us are like Javert in our hearts, like hounds always sniffing around for people's failures. We are the, exempt, the, the embodiment of the law, always inspecting to see how people have failed to measure up and evaluating ourselves against their failures to build ourselves up. It is the legalist who fixates on the sins of others, the failures of others, always evaluating whether they've done enough. Especially, this comes out, when someone near them fails. They're fixated on it. They don't know how to forgive. Give yourself a heart check. When was the last time someone close to you failed? They hurt you? They sinned against you? How did you respond to their failure? Is there mercy? Or is there a fixation on the ways they've offended your law? Do you extend a hand of mercy and compassion to help? Or do you become cold and make them pay for their sins? Self-righteous people have the hardest time forgiving. It is so hard for someone who is obsessed with sin to ever forgive it. They are keeping a record of wrongs. They'll bring them up when convenient to hold over the people they want control over. 
Your sins will be held in their back pocket. They'll accuse you when it's to their advantage. This is the opposite of what a Christian ought to be. A Christian is not one who's fixated on the sins of others. They're not going around scouring the room for specks in other people's eyes when they know that there are logs in their own. They see themselves as the poorest, as the neediest. They see themselves as the people who need help, need grace. They're not going around trying to fix everybody else's sin problems, pointing them out. See, when we understand our own sin, when we understand the great mercy we've been given undeservedly, we will be quick to extend it to others. But when we are up in ourselves, high on ourselves, in self-righteousness, we will be so quick to judge because it makes us feel good, so slow to forgive because we like having a high hand on someone else. We'll be fixated on the problems and failures of people around us. Whereas the poor in spirit will be ready to extend compassion because they have tasted of the compassion of God that they did not deserve and so they're freely giving it to those who would need it. Are you self-righteous and that you love a juicy piece of information that makes someone look inferior to you? A third symptom of self-righteousness is this. It's a feeling that God owes you. This is very closely corresponding to our first point. But I want you to see verse 29. After he's saying he's angry, the father comes out and treats him, but he talks to his father. I mean, imagine someone saying this to God. Look, these many years I have served you, I've never disobeyed your command. You never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. You didn't give me anything that I earned. See, the self-righteous not only like to keep a record of other people's wrongs, they like to keep a record of their own rights. They like to keep a record of the things they've done well in life, the ways they've obeyed, the length of time they've committed to God. They're keeping a record on these things so that one day they can say to God, look at the things I've done. My life needs to be better than what it is right now. Think of that older brother. Think that you're over at the estate of that family during the years that he's serving. He's serving year in, year out. He's working hard. He's obedient to the Father. From the outside, it would look just like a perfect family. He's doing everything right. He's doing his chores. He's reading his Bible. He's following the rules. But deep down in the heart of this older brother, there's something else going on. What's going on is this. He's putting God in his debt. Or so he thinks. I'm doing this so that God will owe me something. I'm doing this so I can stand before Him and I can say, look what I've done with the works of my hands, God. Now do something for me. This is not Christianity. This is something more related to karma. If I do enough good, then good should come back to me. This is really insane when we understand who we are in the holiness of God, isn't it? Who are we to think that we could put the holy, righteous judge of the universe in our debt We who are creatures made from dust who have turned in rebellion against a holy God, we think that the puny works of our hands can somehow change the sins we've committed against Him? 
that we could climb out of the pit of sin on our own selves and attain a, a level of righteousness acceptable to the Father it is insane. We could never do a thing like that. And yet, we can get to the point. Listen, we could even get to the point where we feel we've done enough, we've worked hard enough, we've been good enough that we have the right to accuse God. Have you accused God of being careless or distant or downright cruel? Oh, shall the potter be spoken to in that way by the piece of clay? We do deserve something from God. The Bible's very clear that we do deserve something from God. And if we're talking in terms of what we have deserved, the Bible is very clear that we have deserved hell. Condemnation for our sin against Him. We have deserved to be punished for our sin. To be separated from God. That's what we've deserved. This is all we've ever deserved. (laughs) All we have ever deserved is the righteous judgment of God to condemn us for our sin. And yet, here's the gospel. You cannot do anything to change that. (laughs) You cannot do anything to fix that. You are utterly hopeless and helpless in and of yourself, but God enters creation in the person of His Son, Jesus Christ, to live for sinners, to die on the cross for sinners, to rise from the dead for sinners who don't deserve it at all, to offer His Son to anyone who would receive Him. This is the Gospel that we, when we repent and trust now in Jesus Christ and all that He is for us, we're forgiven our sins. We're clothed in righteousness. We're adopted into the family of God. And we've deserved none of it. We've contributed, as we've said before, only the sins which made it necessary. Nothing our hands have brought to merit salvation before the living God. It is a free gift. If you're not a Christian, you could receive the free gift of salvation simply by faith and faith alone. Turning from yourself, repenting of your sin, and trusting in the risen Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. But if we're self-righteous, we've made this thing into a game. We do enough, God owes us. Let's look at the fourth symptom of self-righteousness. We're refusing to celebrate God's grace. Refuse to celebrate God's grace. Look at verse 28. He's talking to one of the servants. He asks him, what's going on? I hear this music. I hear this dancing. There's, there's some celebration going on. I want to know. He says to him, your brother's come. Your brother's come. I mean, how many of you are waiting for a prodigal to come home? You know someone, you love someone, they're lost, they haven't, maybe they've run from home and they're not coming back, and you could just imagine in your heart what kind of joy there would be if he came home. But here's what happens here. Your brothers come, your father killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. 
Verse 28, he was angry. He refused to go in. There is a party, but I cannot participate in that party because I can't be a part of this. I can't, get some, I can't work it up within me to be excited about what's happening here. This is exactly what's happening in Jonah. It's exactly what's happening in the heart of Jonah. The, the grace of God is falling down like a waterfall from heaven on this city, and Jonah can't celebrate. <laughs> he can't celebrate for even a split second. He's angry at it, just like the older brotherhood. What's fascinating about this is that Jonah loves the grace of God when it's given to him, doesn't he? Oh, he loved that grace of God when he was in the belly of the fish. He loved and cried out and depended on the grace of God when he was in dire need. And as soon as he's freed from his need and now he's out with these people that he thinks should be judged, as soon as grace comes to them, though they also are in dire need of grace, he condemns the grace of God. He can't celebrate it. Friends, I think we just need to pause and examine our own hearts here. We need to take this as a warning because we can do this too. We can love the grace of God when it comes to us. And we can refuse to celebrate the grace of God when it comes to someone we feel doesn't deserve it. In fact, we can even be the ones withholding the grace of God because we feel they don't deserve our grace. Again, this comes back to so many of our times if if we're unwilling to forgive someone, if we're unwilling to work through a problem in a marriage, if we're unwilling to reconcile a relationship, often what's happening is you understand you need grace, but you're just not willing to give that grace to that other person. You're still holding their sins. You're not going to cover that. You're not going to celebrate grace. You're not going to extend grace. You don't want them to have grace. Why? Because you want them to pay for their sin. Because you're driven by the law. How desperate we are in need of help. Because we will celebrate the grace in our own lives while walking in a manner that covers everybody else in law. They must meet our standards or else we will not love them. Let me ask you, can you celebrate the grace of God in someone else's life? even when maybe their receiving of grace might be perceived as a threat to you. That's what happened to Jonah. These people were a threat to him, but God gave them grace. Have you ever been irked by someone else's announcement of blessing in their life? Have you ever been jealous about how God might be working in someone else? The good things happening in someone else's life. Blessings someone else's experience, all the while your life is hard. You're not experiencing the blessing they're experiencing. They're celebrating grace. And you're over here jealous over it. Has your world become so small that you can only rejoice with your own joys? You only weep at your own problems. You've lost the capacity to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Have you become the absolute center of your universe? 
that you feel all blessing and honor and glory belongs to you and nobody else. Jealousy is a hideous creature that lives in the shadows of your self-righteousness. Wherever you find yourself jealous, follow that all the way back to your heart and find there that you think highly of yourself, that you think that you deserve more, and that the reason you're jealous is because you wish you had what they have. You feel you deserve what they're getting. Oh, how we need to humble ourselves in this and be content with what God has given us that we would be people. Oh, that we would be a people who love others to the degree that their joys are ours, their blessings are ours. We so identify with them that we are thrilled with the things that they are thrilled at. We don't want to be a church that casts a suspicious eye at anyone who's experiencing blessing. We also don't want to be a church that casts a suspicious eye at other churches that seem to be enjoying God's blessing. Let's not be the kind of people that's always trying to find an excuse or a rationale for why other people are experiencing blessing. I've seen this in pastoral ministry. Oh, wow, they got a big church? Must be compromising the gospel. They're experiencing fast growth, must be cutting corners. They have a love for sound doctrine. They might not love people very well. And we do that as individuals. Oh, look at this blessing in their life. I'm going to find a a sinful reason for why that's happening because I don't want to celebrate that blessing. Because if I celebrate that blessing, it makes me feel lower. It makes me feel that I'm not getting something I deserve. How gross is this pride? How, how gross this nitpicking pride, this is ugly insecurity that, that results in this smug sense of superiority where we're always looking for reasons why we're better than other people. Let's celebrate the grace of God when it shows up in another's life. Let's not be like the older brother who sits back and complains about grace in someone else's life. Let's be the first to rejoice with someone else's grace in their life, their joys, their sorrows. We, we were so invested with them that their lives are swallowed up in ours, that we are a single body. We have these deep relationships. That their blessings are our blessings. Their joys are our joys. Their burdens are our burdens. Let's be a church that can celebrate revival when it comes to the church down the street. Let's celebrate the grace of God even if it means someone else is receiving it and we're the ones hurting. And let's wrap it up, this last symptom. This is the most extreme of them all, but this is where our self-righteousness takes us. If we let it, we're angry at God's grace. Not only are we refusing to celebrate, we're downright angry at God. Verse 28, he was angry. Jonah chapter 4, verse 1, it displeased Jonah exceedingly. He was angry. Angry. What is it about the human condition that we act this way? Let me go back to Genesis chapter 4 and Cain and Abel. Abel makes a good sacrifice. Cain doesn't. Chapter 4, verse 5, but for Cain and his offering, the Lord had no regard. So Cain was very angry. 
it's like we're getting angry at all the ways God is accepting and blessing and gracing other people. What is this human problem that we face? It's not a Cain problem, a Jonah problem, an older brother problem. It's a humanity problem. It's a problem that we all are facing and will face. Here's why humans don't like grace. You ready? Grace exposes us. Grace absolutely exposes us as the weak, unworthy, unable, spiritual cripples that we are. It shatters our pride because grace comes along and says, no one has deserved any of the things that they're getting. No one has gotten anything because of the things they've done to merit it. And if you are banking your life and saying that your life is valuable because of the things you've merited, grace is offensive to you. Grace is your enemy because it is going against the things you're trying to do to build yourself up. Grace essentially walks into the room and says this, all your works, all your efforts, all that you are, are not because you've done anything to earn them. All the good things in your life are not because you've done anything to earn them. They come because someone else has chosen to be generous. You, you use, this, use this analogy. You've probably even heard this or seen this. Maybe you've said this. You ever told someone the only reason you've accomplished anything in your life because of the, the parents you have? Maybe someone has said that to you. I've certain, some people have said it about celebrities. Right? The only people they're famous, the only reason they're famous is because of who they're related to. The only reason you got on the team is because your dad's the coach, things like that. Why is that offensive? The reason it's offensive is because it's saying you didn't deserve anything to get that. Why are we hurt by that? Because it's taking the credit off of us and it's putting it on someone else. Listen, that is the message of Christianity. The only reason you get anything is because of someone else. That is offensive if we're self-righteous. That is an offensive message if we're banking on our own works. Grace comes in and says the only reason you have anything, the reason you can enjoy a family, the reason you can enjoy a marriage, the reason you can enjoy your children, the reason you can enjoy a sunny day, a beautiful sunset, the only reason you can enjoy any of these things is because of someone else, not you. You have done nothing to get these things. If we're talking about what you deserve, we're talking about hell. It's offensive. If we are laboring to be something in and of ourselves, grace hurts. Which is why people who are trying to work their way into good standing with God and people despise grace. They would never say that with their lips, but they feel that in their hearts when grace comes to someone else and they feel they haven't deserved it. They despise grace. Because it's reminding them that you don't deserve it either. You don't deserve anything you've gotten. No one does. That's the whole point of the gospel. No one deserves anything but the condemnation of God. Grace says, though we have all deserved punishment, God has acted in grace through Jesus Christ to save. And so some people are hating the message of grace because they want credit. But I want you to bring yourselves back to the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit. The poor in spirit. 
These are the people who inherit the kingdom of God. The poor in spirit, they're, they're, they're recognizing I contribute nothing because I have nothing. I'm unable, I'm weak. I'm not merely spiritually crippled, I'm spiritually dead. I cannot do anything apart from Christ. I deserve condemnation. I must have Christ or I'm lost. They're not fixating on anybody else's sins. They're not more concerned about those issues. They're concerned about their own soul, their own issues. They know they've been walking with Jesus enough to see that He's walked into that mansion, that He's opened the closets, and they've seen all the filth, and they know they're not going to spend all the time working on everyone else's filth. They've got enough of their own. But they've experienced grace and mercy. And so there's a gentleness they have, a meekness toward others. They know that God owes them nothing and so they are thrilled and content and thankful with just about anything. They love grace. They live by grace. They breathe grace. They celebrate grace wherever they see it. Are you this way? The grace of God has just so radically changed you. It's so humbled you that you've come to see that you're poor in spirit. And so you love the grace of God. Or are you like the older brother, pouting that someone else is getting the celebration, jealous of what they're getting, thinking that you could somehow earn your way into good standing with God, that you can put God in your debt for your good behavior? I want you to picture with me in closing a scene. Imagine an old judge. He's worked all his life in the courtrooms, and he's seen it all. He's witnessed all kinds of crimes and criminals. They've all stood before him, and he has done all that he could to stand for justice and truth. But in his heart, imagine this is a man who is poor in spirit. Picture this old judge kneeling in a church alone, pouring out his heart to God. And in the darkness of the church, imagine another man comes in the back door. This man smells of smoke and whiskey, maybe drugs. He's in raggedy clothes. He clearly has not been taking care of himself. And he kneels as well, not too far from the old judge. And smelling it, he looks up and recognizes this man has, is here. This other man has also begun to pray. What does the old judge feel in that moment? What would you feel in the moment? Do you perceive yourself to be in that moment the superior one? That to talk to that person is some condescension to yourself? Do you feel disgust? That person needs to keep their distance. The one who is, in, who is poor in spirit will not feel those things. 
The judge thinks, all my life I've been in courtrooms, all my life I've been with criminals, but in all my days I've never met anyone as needy as I am. In all the people I've trialed, in all the sentences I've given, I've not met anyone more in need of grace than me. The only way I am the way I am is the grace of God. The only way I remain the way I am is the grace of God. The only way I'll continue to be who I am is by grace, undeserved grace. Grace I could not earn. This is something that was given to me. And so the man that comes next to me is a brother. Because before the cross, the ground is always level. There is no hierarchy in grace of people closer to God and farther to God. In Christ, we are forever and completely justified and none of it is because of anything we have done. We meet in the book of Jonah, a man who is still, though compliant, struggling with self-righteousness. Given even, you might say, to self-righteousness. And in reflecting on his self-righteousness, I want to call us to forsake it and to become poor in spirit, to consider ourselves the neediest people in the room, to consider ourselves in deep need of the grace of God, not only at salvation, but all through life as we live for the glory of God. Let's pray. So Father, this is something that You must do in us. You must humble us. You must make us poor in spirit. We pray that You would. In Jesus' name, Amen.